welcome to Life versus Science. My name's Jim Fishwick. We're here to talk tonight about science. We all know that science is a monolith of fact where perfect knowledge is distilled from impeccably captured data to create simple and elegant universal truths that <laughs> Sorry, just kidding. You should see your faces. You should see your faces. Science is messy, inconclusive, and generated by the kinds of humans who are pretty sure that their sandwich didn't fall in the Petri dish. It'll probably be fine. The best scientific consensus we have at the moment, for instance, is that humans have caused climate change. And even that is only 97% of scientists. Uh, so for balance tonight, uh, each of our panellists uh, will dedicate 3% of themselves to constantly producing methane. <laughs> Related fact, uh, I found out uh, literally last Monday, the Georgia Institute of Technology announced that Uranus opens and closes every day to release solar wind. <laughs> I swear to you that is true research. You can't get better than that. But tonight, we're not focusing so much on science as a profession, but as a way of life. We're not talking about science. We're going to be talking to scientists, the sort of people who use neural networks to write their Tinder profiles, or who bring up quantum superpositioning to get out of a parking ticket, or who refer to their marriages as covalent bonding. So, full disclosure, I personally have an arts degree, so while I have read A Brief History of Time, I struggle to follow the character motivations and major themes beyond the first act, uh, and ultimately consider it an inferior sequel to A La Recherche de Tom Perdue. Uh, just kidding. Of course, of course I haven't read A Brief History of Time. Uh, what kind of person would want to spend their spare time wading through undecipherable books about impenetrable concepts for fun? Let's meet our panel! Uh, will you please welcome from UNSW and STEM Punk, it's Shane Hengst, uh, a medical researcher at UCID and reigning Barfest champion, it's Lee Nicholson, from the University of New England and in situ science, it's Dr. James O'Hanlon, and lecturer at University of Sydney and host of ABC's Dear Science, Dr. Alice Williamson. Welcome, everyone. Hi. Thanks, Jim. So that's a very brief introduction to each of you. I was wondering if you could uh, tell us, uh, how would you describe the research that you do to a fellow expert in your field? Shane. Fellow expert? Well, I'm not really an expert in my own field, but I like to dumb it down personally. But essentially, I'm looking into planet formation. And basically, there's this stuff called the debris disk, which is the leftover bits from the original formation of the star and the disc, protoplanetary disk itself. And it's basically dust grains colliding into each other and uh, making protoplanets, the cores of the planets that we know of today. And it's a very contemplated interplay between dust, the location within the disk, and the temperature of the grains. And I'm trying to figure that all out. I'm just beginning, but I'm trying to figure all that out. Yeah, cool. Uh, James, how about you? Uh, uh, I'm a sensory ecologist with a particular focus on behavioral ecology and invertebrate zoology. Does that make any sense? No. Essentially, I like animals. Good, uh, good, good, good. Uh, Lee, how about you? <laughs> um, so I look at a couple of proteins that are involved in cancer movement, and I think technically I'm probably the expert in them, not because I'm very good, but just because no one else is looking at them because they're not that interesting. <laughs> But I look at how cancer moves around the body and also pregnancy because some of the cells in pregnancy act like cancer cells. So you're enjoying your PhD then? Yeah, it's fantastic. <laughs> uh, Alice, how about you? 
Um, I do some malaria research and, and particularly try and um, increasingly get other people to do my malaria research for me um, and uh, have, you know, kind of controversially in some ways recruited um, some high school students to do that and um, some undergraduates um, in a project that we call Breaking Good. Um, but we are trying to find a new medicine to kill the malaria parasite because it's been around for a very, very long time and it's completely preventable and curable, treatable. Um, but because it affects people who live in less economically developed countries, um, we haven't sorted it out yet. And unfortunately, even though we have great medicines, um, resistance is spreading, so we need some new ones. So... Thank you, everyone. That meant very little to me. Um, uh, nothing personal. It's just my own abilities that I'm working through. So I want to go down the line again. And if you could describe your research again, I'm going to ding this bell here every time I don't understand what you're saying. Uh, Shane, we can start with you again, please. I study dust with a computer. <laughs> very good. Very good. Very Playing good. the game. So did I drop my job. Uh, what aspect of the dust? Turbulent effects, uh, <laughs> swirly stuff. Swirly stuff, excellent, excellent, excellent. Uh, heat from the host star. Host st <laughs> The star. Yeah, the okay, star. cool, 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 cool. Great, uh, James, how about you? Uh, so, okay, I like animals. Uh, particularly interested in the evolution of uh, signaling paradigms within... Uh, <laughs> animals are colourful. <laughs> and smelly, and they make noise, and within that smell and noise and color is contained information. I'm interested in how that information is transmitted and received, and how that influences that animal's life history. Oh, <laughs> information influences the history? The uh, history uh, is something that's happened, uh, their day lives. You can't influence the history. We know that. <laughs> Time travel researcher as well. <laughs> Animals do stuff, okay? And it affects, affects their lives and the environment around them. Yeah, cool. Yeah. Cool. Animals do stuff. Great. Uh, Lee, how about you? So, cancer cells. <laughs> Heard of them. Yeah. Um, it turns out that they have these anchors made up of proteins... Uh, little sticks <laughs> that they hang on to things with and when metast... Oh, no. Okay. Uh, um, when cancer spreads around the body, they take those sticks and use them like ice picks to move. Yeah, nice. I get that. And I look at those... Stick picks. Oh, Be careful. <laughs> I think that's a good job there. Fantastic. One more. Okay. Please demean your research for me one more so, time. So um, we are trying to make new molecules, make new funny-looking triangles, rectangles, and mainly hexagons that are mm -hmm. joined together. Um, that kill malaria in a different way by trying to target an iron transporter channel, a hole in the surface of the parasite, 
uh-huh. a hole in the surface of the thing that kills you. Yeah, great, great, great. And, and getting it in there in a different way. But we don't know the shape of the hole or the shape of the thing that our hexagons bind to. So we're trying to understand the shape of it or the shape of the thing on the surface of the parasite that we need to design a molecule, a hexagon or a triangle mm-hmm. or whatever. Oh, please. To you bind don't need to dumb it down for me. Yeah, I know. I'm sorry for being so patronizing. <laughs> Um, I think I played myself. I think that ended up being more complicated. Yeah, that was worse. <laughs> My research sites are stupid now. You guys are saving the planet. You're forming planets. Hey, uh, what did you want to be when you grew up? Did you, did you want to be a scientist? Or did oh, you? yeah. Yeah? Yeah, I did. No. No. <laughs> Why not? What, what, did you, what did you want to be? Uh, my, my earliest career choice that I can remember was chimney sweep. Uh, <laughs> Because I like Mary Poppins as a kid, and they looked like they had so much fun on the rooftops. And then later on, it was, I don't know, rock stardom and, and all that sort of stuff, and science was plan B. And mm-hmm. it's going well so far. So chimney sweep, rock star, scientist. <laughs> if I can combine those, that'd be great. And how would that look? What would, what would, what would the day in the life of the chimney sweep There'd be lots of, uh, lots of stepping times, uh, lots of downbeats, and uh, lots of knees-ups. Lee, uh, well, like, I mean, did you expect to be working in cancer research when you were six? Or is... Not cancer specifically. Uh-huh. Or have... stick pics, but just research. Just researching yeah. things. You were researching Yeah, I used to mix chemicals and stuff around at home and make fireworks and throw eggs at walls <laughs> to see how they're dry oh, okay, on the wall. Right. <laughs> no, Mum, I don't want to make a cake. <laughs> I'm a scientist. Um, what would you be doing if you weren't uh, a scientist? It sounds like it's becoming an intervention, but I swear it's not. Yeah, um... I was going to say archaeology, but I think that's still a science. <laughs> I don't know. Universities stick that in the arts department, don't they? Do they? Controversial. Oh. Like, oh. Yeah, well, yeah, then archaeology. <laughs> Indiana Jones. I know that's not the reality of it. Shane, how about you? <laughs> what? It's not a documentary, Indiana Jones? Oh. Uh, Shane, what did you want to be when you grew up? Um, that's a... Challenging one, because I didn't know I could actually study astronomy at university until my teenage years. So I always had a passion for studying the stars and where we all come from. But I guess an alternative career, I always loved playing tennis. So maybe I could have been the next Roger Federer. It's it's always nice to sort of say, yeah, it was the science that got in the way of me being the next Roger Federer. I chose a higher calling. Alice, how about you? I think I wanted to be a postman for a little while. And I remember wanting to be a welder. That was another thing. For a, for a, a, and it wasn't anything to do with flash dance, which is a strange uh, realisation. But um, I also really liked making things. So I think um, if I hadn't turned to science, I'd probably be making furniture. So how much does science spill over into the rest of your life? Because... I, I live my life in a constant arty bubble, and so science doesn't affect my life that much. But does, is it different for people who live in the scientific world? When you go to see a movie, for instance, are you the sort of person who 
points yeah, out. Yeah, it's, it's ruined movies. It's ruined, it's ruined movies. movies and shows. Yeah. There's a support network, isn't there? Yeah. There's a phone yeah, call. We'll, we'll hand it out. You know, in a there little is. Um, my partner has now learnt that if we're watching something and there's a science scene on and I make a hmm sound, she now just ignores me. Oh. She's wearing a lab coat and their hair's down. Or, um, or if they're growing cells in an improper dish, like a beaker or a flask. Heels in the lab, that's another, another big one. There's also always the trope about the lone scientist who's left after usually a zombie apocalypse and they're the last person who's getting a cure for whatever's happened. But usually the energy is shut down in the city, which would render most of the biological equipment like useless. So I don't know what they're doing. And also, you know, due to work health and safety, you're not allowed to work alone in the lab. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's just unsafe, really. I like the idea that they have to bring a zombie in with them to... Just sit, just sit here, and if no, anything goes wrong, said, press that down. button. So long as they're PC2 trained, then that's okay. Uh, James O'Shane, any any glaring errors? The the, the hardest one for me was uh, the tuxedo starring Jackie Chan. <laughs> Which bit of that <laughs> is scientifically accurate? I mean, so everyone's seen the tuxedo, right? <laughs> Can't say that. Why don't you give us a Why don't you give us a quick pricey? All right, Jackie Chan plays Jimmy Tung. Humble taxi driver. I knew driver. the name. <laughs> <laughs> but he's such a good taxi driver that he gets uh, offered a job as a limo driver. And the, he, the person he works for turns out to be... A, spoiler, he's a secret agent. And that's right, he doesn't live long. So, another, spoiler. Spoiler. <laughs> and now, Jackie Chan, Jimmy Chong, is there to witness his death. And this guy's last dying words are... Water Strider. Water Strider. Well, actually, no. Jackie Chan thinks he says Walter Strider. So he was looking for this evil genius called Walter Strider. Finds out later he was actually saying Water Strider. And the evil genius is planning on releasing swarms of Water Striders carrying <laughs> viruses across the planet. Uh, and Jackie Chan gets a super suit that lets him do uh, martial arts. That's, I'm fine with the super suit thing. But... <laughs> they start going on about how the water strider colonies have to follow their queen and so they make the queen fly off somewhere and all the other water striders follow her water striders aren't social insects <laughs> I mean come on <laughs> and did Hoyts give you a refund? <laughs> I, um, I, I might have bought the DVD just because it's Jackie Chan but I switch it off when it gets to the water striders. Uh, Shane, any... Oh, how do I top that? <laughs> I'm not a comedian. Anyway, uh, I guess I don't like films posing that they've asked the scientists and that, uh, experts and they come across and saying, yes, we interviewed these guys and we actually accurately predicted or researched the scene to make it more realistic. And I guess movies like The Core, I don't know if you've seen that movie... I've never seen it I because love that everyone's movie, actually it's yeah. awful, but I love it. <laughs> I heard the premise you've got to reignite the earth or by sending a nuclear weapon in the center of the earth. It's like, what the hell? Uh, I never saw it, but I saw what it was it, Supernova? No, not Supernova. It was another one where I had to send something to the center of the sun to reignite that. Sunshine? Sunshine, yes. Oh, Great soundtrack. 
That's probably the only thing going for it. Maybe the good acting, performances and lies, but the whole premise of the film was just shocking. Is that like Brian Cox, a consultant on that film or something? They consulted particle physicists, which is fine for particles emanating from the sun, but... <laughs> I, I guess. But just reigniting nuclear fusion by sending a device, you just need a lot of hydrogen, really, and they ran out of hydrogen. <laughs> Anyway, someone bursts in like, there's no more hydrogen. (laughs) It's all gone. I can't breathe. My major bugbear is for any show, um, a little bit like the CSI franchise, um, where basically what happens is that somebody finds a piece of a rock that's only available on one island (laughs) that somebody happens to have been to on holiday because they've got a lot of money even though they're scientists and they remember this strange you know folk tale of how this one rock was the only type of rock that was here and it's the clue and that's you know that's enough i go with that but it's the idea that they kind of put one little sample of this you know this paint or this rock into a machine and then suddenly like the machine the one machine prints out all of the data that they need and you think I wish that science was like that. And I wish it came out with these beautiful spectra that then basically said, you know, 1972 Peugeot. Whereas actually it's, you know, three weeks worth of chasing things and the machine being down and having to call somebody to come and fix it. And, you know, all the while they're doing this with their hair down and their lab coat open and the heels on. And, you know, it's just a little bit of a bugbear. Absolutely. I like the idea that the spectrograph comes out looking like a map of Madagascar or something. To it. Sometimes, it, yeah, it computer does. interfaces are my huge pet peeve in movies. Oh yeah, anytime anyone hacks designed, something, and they float in midair. Yeah. yeah, wonderfully animated. It falls. Yeah. <laughs> What's been your weirdest moment of realization where you look up in the middle of some research that you're doing and we go, "Oh, this is my job." Like, about a month ago, it wasn't for my work personally, but it was for someone in my lab, so technically it was a little bit related. Um, We went to a a small town uh, near the Arizona and Mexico border to catch kangaroo rats and bring them back, just the two of us. We were staying at a research station with a lot of other uh, mainly American biologists, and at night, because everyone was really excitable about their work would go out into the desert and look at insects and because about that? it's a well, day, right? well that's what I thought um, but it turns out that if you run around in the desert near the Mexico border <laughs> at 1am with flashlights and like four four wheel drives lined up down a dirt track border patrol will stop and they'll ask you if you're American citizens and what you're doing. Uh, and we said, we're looking at ants. Um, and we're staying at the research station and they kind of rolled their eyes and left. But that was, that was probably a point for me, yeah. I mean, white ant is the latest street name for cocaine. Exactly. Yeah. Drugs? Yeah, drugs. <laughs> drugs, drugs, drugs. Super pure drugs. Anyone else? The one thing that stuck out with me is the day that I got 4,000 golf tees delivered to my house. And Sorry, 4,000 golf, golf tees. 
Oh, right. I thought you meant like T-shirts. No, the little like, wooden things you put on. Gone golfing. And... No more science for me. <laughs> Which, in, in my field, made perfect sense because they were for putting plasticine frogs on top of. Oh, yeah, that makes much more yeah. sense. Sorry, <laughs> why are we putting plasticine frogs on top of the golf tees? <laughs> so, okay, animals are colorful, right? So, if you want to study the function of these colors, you want to find a way to conduct an experiment where you can manipulate the colors and see what changes in their sort of, can I say, ecological interactions? Is that understandable? So, my job for about a month was making plasticine frogs and painting them different colors, <laughs> and then you put them out in a forest perched on top of golf tee, and you see if anything eats them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a question from the audience. Why do they have to be on a Are golf tee? Just be on the ground? <laughs> yeah. It was a um, way of us assessing whether they'd been disturbed at all. Okay. So if they'd been knocked off the golf tee, they'd been probably been disturbed by an animal or something. Okay. If they were just sitting on a leaf, we wouldn't have been able to detect that. And so I had 4,000 frogs and I needed 4,000 golf tees. <laughs> Makes sense, right? <laughs> yeah. Your Honor. So uh, these have all been longer questions. What I want to do is I've got a couple of quickfire questions that I've prepared for each of you. Um, I'm going to give you 30 seconds to answer them. Answer as... Uh, fully, yet concisely as you can in 30 seconds, please. So, uh, first up, Shane. Okay, great. You've got 30 seconds to tell me, what's on the other end of a black hole? Oh. Who knows? Good. All right, great. Thank you. <laughs> Question two. Alice, uh, what's, uh, what's fire made of? Fire is the result of a chemical reaction between usually oxygen and a fuel that has reached its ignition temperature. And when the fuel reacts with oxygen... Halfway. It involves the breaking and then making of bonds. And overall, this energy, this process gives out more energy than it takes in. And the energy is in the form of heat and light, which is fire. Incredible. Alice Williams, everybody. Uh, Lee, what are hiccups? I don't know. Cool. But... Can I take it? Do you know the answer? Sorry? Do you know the answer? No, I'm just oh, curious. Um, maybe the body's reaction to trying to get something out? Yeah. Yeah. Is my guess. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. James, do flies feel pain? Define pain. <laughs> if I kill them, do they know before they die? Say that again. <laughs> if, like, if I kill a fly and cause it pain in the process, will it know before it dies? Uh, they've got nerves. They've nerve cells. And our nerve cells are the things that in us let us experience pain. But maybe pain's a bit of an anthropomorphic concept, and it's a difficult question to answer. Let's keep going. I'm going to reduce the time to 15 seconds. You're all doing too well. Uh, Shane, why can't we touch the sky? Too high? Yeah, good. Uh, Alice, animal, vegetable, or mineral, kiss, marry, kill? I would kiss a mineral. Mm Mm-hmm. Marry a, an animal mm-hmm. and kill a vegetable. Yeah, good. That's what I had. Yeah, excellent. Um, Lee, why do good things happen to bad people? Because life's unfair. Cool. Okay. Um, thank you. Um, and lastly, James, what is love? Oh, God. Glad you asked, Jim. Uh, <laughs> okay, it's, it's a poetic concept. That's all. 
no, sorry, incorrect. The answer uh. is, baby, don't hurt me, don't hurt me no more. Ah, damn it. <laughs> thank you, thank you. Um, thank you so much for all of your questions. Um, we got uh, more than we were expecting. I can't guarantee we'll get to all of them, but thank you, thank you very much. Uh, we really appreciate it. Uh, just some business that's come in from the audience. Uh, first up, uh, hiccups uh, are an arrhythmic irritation of the phrenic nerve. Uh, thank you. Thank you, Dr. Google. Where's the phrenic nerve? That's another great question. Let's say in the neck. Why not? Um, someone's tweeting at me. I can feel it vibrating. Someone's tweeting at me right now to let me know I'm wrong. Um, James, a, a question that's just for you. Uh, what happens if someone eats the plasticine? What usually happens when something eats something, it comes out the other end. Really. I, I mean, I, I'm, I think they meant it less as a sort of general philosophical question, but specifically <laughs> relating to your research. What, hap- what would have happened if someone stole your plasticine? Oh, yeah, so we use plasticine in these studies because, say, we put these plasticine frogs out, we can then tell what's trying to eat them by looking at the actual marks in them, I mean, actually tell whether it's mammal teeth or rodent teeth or insect mouth parts or bird beaks. They have to use soft plasticine. And we have to make sure it's water-based plasticine and non-toxic and non-harmful to the animals. So it's a really commonly used technique, and it's one of those great things where you can do amazing science using Play-Doh. Picking up the film and science debate. Uh, what moment of sci-fi movie or book has given you your best I told you so and I think the word here at the end is frisson. Is that correct? Frisson. Excellent. I've got no idea what that means. Which moment of sci-fi movie or book has given you your best I told you so? Frisson. This might be a long story. Cool. <laughs> Lean back everyone. everyone. Get another drink. <laughs> uh, has everybody seen Crank starring Jason Statham? Yes. I use that movie as a teaching tool to explain why nasal spray works. Okay. Jason Statham plays Chev Chelios, notorious underworld figure. He gets kidnapped for some reason, and the, the mob bosses in this land are very creative, and instead of just killing him, they put a bomb inside him that is has some sort of sensor of his adrenal function, and if his adrenaline levels drop below a particular level, he explodes. So it's speed, but with a, a, a cockney martial artist, you know. And so he's got to go hunting down the bad guys in the most adrenaline-seeking ways possible. Jet skis, mountain bikes, all that sort of stuff. When he runs out of ideas, a bum on the street tells him he needs to go find a guy that fixes horse races and get pure adrenaline from him. When he runs out of that, another bum on the street tells him just to snort nasal spray because it's got pseudoephedrine in it, which is a chemical compound that just works just like adrenaline. No, what adrenaline does is it's a hormone. It's released into your bloodstream, and it initiates this fight-or-fight reflex, and it withdraws resources from non-essential things like your hearing, like your peripheral vision, like your extremities, and pulls blood away from surface capillaries, which is why you sort of get a flushed pale appearance in these situations. So this is why nasal spray works, because when you push it up your nose, it actually works like adrenaline for your nose and draws resources away from your inflamed capillaries. 
And that's an extract from Dr. James O'Hanlon's How to Use Nasal Spray. Thank you, Thank you for indulging me, guys. <laughs> um, this question, uh, I don't know who it's from, sorry. Uh, it's for anyone. What science stereotype bugs you the most? Uh, the lab coat, I guess, is the big one. It's being an astronomer, we're mainly in sandals. Or so. I can't really wear sandals, unfortunately. <laughs> Uh, but we're mainly behind a computer. Wait, uh, why can't you wear sandals? Oh, God. It's a fashion thing. No, I've actually got orthotics in my... Uh-uh. <laughs> Sorry, I asked you. Speaking of stereotypes. Speaking of stereotypes. I'm a jerk, That's all right. I missed the sandal or the thongs, right? Uh, but that's the typical stereotype of a scientist. Everyone in a lab coat with the goggles and everything like that. And I work sh- in a lab and I don't even wear a lab coat. There you go, yeah. Well, I only wear a lab coat if I'm teaching because... We teach students to wear lab coats. So I'm perpetuating it, really. <laughs> I'm a bit worried about that. I do remember the campaign, you know, when, when I was at school or college, there was a big campaign, like, not all chemists wear white coats. Yeah, we had that as well. And the big thing was that, you know, you could be a chemist and be cool. And how's that worked out? Mm, no. <laughs> and cool's one of those subjective words. Yeah, it, it really is. So... Um, uh, we've got another very broad, uh, funny question. Um, this is for Alice specifically. Why can't you use crystallography to determine the structure of the ion channel, then go ahead and use that structure and take your blocking molecule off it? That's from Jack. Um, Jack has a wonderful question. So, crystallography, as I'm sure everybody knows here, but in case the listeners at home don't, because they're not all as expert as, as all of you, um, is a really great way of um, looking at the structure of molecules or proteins or anything that's made up of atoms, which is everything, by the way, because everything is chemistry. Um, and, um, as a physicist, Jim. <laughs> <laughs> I just think everything is astronomy or astrophysics, but anyway. That's... Well, you might think that, but seeing as this... Seeing as this fight, question fight, was fight, fight. specifically for me, I'll continue. Fair enough. Um, so if you, if you fire x-rays at um, molecules or proteins, you can tell by the way that they bounce back off these atoms or the way they're deflected about how they're, they're connected, how they're bonded together. And this can be used to, to deduce some really complex structures. And as a chemist who makes pretty small molecules, um, to be honest... It's still very gratifying when you get an x-ray structure because you know that you're like, oh, thank God, the thing I thought I've been making for ages is actually the right structure. So everyone's just like, oh, great. Um, But that's a great question because you can use this to to look at the structure of much, much larger molecules, proteins, peptides. Well, proteins are the biggest ones, but they're made of peptides. But this particular channel in the membrane of the parasite, so it's in the outside bit that comes to the surface of the parasite, and it's, it's one of the ways that the parasite can take things in or chuck things out. It's such a large structure, and it's in the membrane. And because when things are in the membrane and when they're really big, it's very, very difficult to get a crystal structure of them because you need to essentially sort of freeze it in a moment of time. So one of the ways that you can try and get these crystal structures is to try and get things to bind inside them and get them to kind of almost freeze out in time, for want of a better description, so you can look at the structure. 
but it's really, really difficult to get the crystal structures of these particular um, types of, 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 of channels. So we have got some collaborators who are trying to do that, but while we're waiting for them to try and do that research, we're seeing if we can have a different approach and try and see if we can look at all the things that bind well and see if we can see something common about the, basically the bits of the jigsaw that bind well so we can try and see what that shape is. Uh, Alice Williamson. Uh, very kindly helping Jack with his homework there. Um, this one is from Rebecca. Have any of you watched The Secret? And what are your thoughts on the biology of belief? And Rebecca has put two kisses at the end there. Um, which is 40% forty of a kiss for each of us. Um, the biology of belief and the secret that the universe can make things come true. Is this, this that weird book that if you just envisage things, then they will... Yeah. I, I know the story, but room. I don't know the leaf part. Belief. I don't, I don't know where the leaf comes into it. But belief, not the oh, leaf. Oh, belief. Yeah. <laughs> the, the science of the leaf. I get to answer that one. Well, in, in, in that case... No. <laughs> okay, great. No, no. I, Probably you, something to do with pattern recognition. Positive thinking is fine. Wanting to find meaning in things that are apparent patterns, because that's where minds work. But no, I haven't seen The Secret. Anybody? Has anyone seen The Secret? Yeah, it's just junk. Okay, great. <laughs> that was an expert from the audience, I think. Yeah, an expert from the audience. <laughs> uh, what would you really like to say or do to a climate science denier? And then quite distressingly at the bottom it says, assume there are no witnesses. <laughs> are we talking anyone in particular? Uh, we can stop the recording. We can edit this bit out of it. Helps. But it's hard because there's nothing that you can say that will change their mind. It's, I mean, it's essentially this idea of belief. You decide what you're going to believe, and then any information that's passed to you, you're just filtering out what does and doesn't support your worldview, which is the total antithesis of science, where it goes the complete other way, where you say, all right, I have no opinions on this. We let the numbers do the talking. So, mm, And that's why we thought that phlogiston was a thing for about 50 years. It isn't. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. Um, I think, I think it's one of those, those funny things where it depends on, um, on who the climate uh, change denier is and, and what their position is in, in society. Because you have a lot of people, sometimes they're called politicians, um, <laughs> who... Please don't swear on the podcast. Um, <laughs> who sometimes seem to say things that we're not even sure whether they believe or think or do or they have to say them or don't have to say them or whether they even know what they're saying. But, and, and that's one issue, and it's very important to try and stop people who have um, a microphone um, from, <laughs> from saying things that are dangerous or from um, uh, misinforming the public. But on, a, you know, and on an individual basis, there's been lots of research done, some at the University of Sydney, some in other places, that says actually... The best thing to do with an, uh, a climate uh, change denier or anyone who doesn't believe something, so about vaccinations or other things, is actually to sit down and rather than, you know, being um, cocky or rather than, you know, kind of shouting at them or telling them they're stupid, is to actually engage in a discussion and to try and explain why, 
what they think doesn't align with what the facts might say. So I think talking is always a good way to approach people, and you can have plenty of witnesses for that. <laughs> just, yeah, more on that, just to figure out what makes them tick, I guess, through that conversation, is understanding their point of view. Because uh, we're all sort of one-sided in our little science bubble, and they're not inside that. And I guess trying to understand what's going on in here, what makes draws out their own conclusions from that. Yeah, I'm a firm believer of the fact that if you're arguing with someone or if you disagree with someone on something and after about 10 minutes, if you can't swap sides and argue back at them after and each arguing for each other's point of view, then you're both doing it wrong. What scientific fact did you think you knew as a child that it turned out to be absolutely wrong? How precise are we talking about here with the fact? Uh, going from what's written on here, as a child you knew it, but now you think well, it's absolutely wrong. Well, not absolutely wrong. The sun is not the centre of our solar system, is the, the fact today. When I was growing up, I thought the sun was, because what is the centre of our solar system? The sun. It's not quite. No, no, no. All the planets go around the sun. No, they don't. Yes, yes. <laughs> go on. <laughs> Uh, it's just offset from the sun's centre because I guess the bigger, best analogy is if you ever pick up a kid and do the swirl. <laughs> <laughs> so you mean when the sun's going around you? So you're, you're the sun. If you're, pick, if, but, um, you're picking up a kid. Sorry, what was that? I, I got it, Jim. I got it. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't quite hear Keep going. But you're leading back as well. Right, when you're swinging your kid around, right? So it's just a gravitational pull on each other. Same goes with the Earth and the Moon. The Earth is not the centre of the Earth-Moon system. They're actually doing this great cosmic dance with one another, and they're actually orbiting a common centre of mass. And that's something else. That was sort of more precise and saying the Sun, no, that's not the centre of the solar system. But then again, there's no centre of the universe, so that's another thing as well. I think mine are based on um, my lovely dad, um, um, and his, um, what I hadn't realised until I was a, a kind of probably about 14 or 15 is that he has certain words or vocabulary that he uses to describe things that I thought were used by everybody. <laughs> so um, one example would be, and these are scientific terms, is that he would refer to something, see if you can guess what this is, as a spiky Norman. And um, this is my dad's description of a spot that hasn't like, kind of come to the surface. It's just like a spot underneath the skin. <laughs> so there are loads of things that I thought were like general terms for things. So I'd be like, oh, we've got a bit of a spiky Norman there. <laughs> and people would look at me and just go, what are you talking about, Alice? And I'd be like, spiky Norman. And, and as I, you know, grew a little bit older, I realised there were lots of words and phrases that, that my dad has just invented for himself <laughs> and that they're not technical or scientific and I need to be careful. Not yet. Yeah. Lee, is there any capacity in your research to call cancer anchors <laughs> spiky Normans? Well, actually... Um, <laughs> the, 
the, the way the proteins, the little sticks are situated, I guess they could be referred to as like, you know, they've got a little spiky characteristics. So. Called Norman. Yeah, it's yeah. Called, called Norman. I, yeah. Spiky Norman named after Jim Williamson. That's Jim Williamson, yeah. Excellent. Uh, any things that you, you knew were correct as a kid that you've... Um, yeah, my, my sister told me when I was younger that because we had a tree outside our house that was filled with um, uh, stink bugs. I'm not sure. Does everyone know? Is that a thing? Yeah, okay. Like, they just smell. Um, and she told me that if a sp- stink bug sprayed you, you'd go blind. And I found out 15 years later, she told me that because apparently I was cute when I cried. <laughs> So every time a stink bug sprayed me, I thought I'd go blind and cry. And do you still talk to your sister? Yeah, recently, yeah. Uh, James? Actually, my thing, now that I think of it, is time. And this idea that time is relative, and I just didn't get it as a kid, because the way people try and explain it is that, oh, you know, when you're having fun, time flies, and when you're bored, it moves slowly. And I said, oh, well, that's a perceptual thing, it doesn't actually mean that time can change and I just thought that the time was something that we defined as people and my mind was changed completely by actually sitting and reading A Brief History of Time, Jim <laughs> where it actually explained <laughs> that time is just another variable that can change and the way we can measure it by is it times faster near the surface of the planet than further right? The opposite. I think. It's slower in yeah. terms of the planet. It's actually a quantifiable thing. Gravity. And We've actually measured it. So yeah. Confirming Einstein's theory of gravity, yeah. That was one of those like, the classic mind-blowing Well, moments. while we're on mind-blowing deep things from people who've maybe uh, popped out to have a little marijuana. I was trying to think of a cute euphemism. Anyway, uh, <laughs> while we're on mind-blowing things... How do I know that the blue I see is the same as the blue you see? You know? Great question. You don't. Yeah, you don't. <laughs> okay, you don't. cool. That's it. There's, there's no way of telling. I, I prefer is to it, think of colours as just wavelengths it, yeah. as opposed to names of things. This, you know, this is another one that comes back to lovely Jim Williamson um, <laughs> that he used to give us a task when we were, said we were bored which was to think of a new colour. <laughs> so me and my sister used to sit there going... <laughs> and oh, so not just a colour name, yeah. an actual no, physical an actual new colour. new colour. And, um, and that, that led me to think that. He's <laughs> uh, really not, but I can understand why you think that. He's a sense of humour is what I meant to say. Yeah. <laughs> um, we've got a question here. Does science have a gender problem? Have you experienced issues as a scientist because of your gender? Shane and James. Yep. I got this one. Oh, all the time. <laughs> as, as the uh, white, hetero, cis, English-speaking suburban males, we got this. Uh, yeah. yeah, of course we do. <laughs> uh, that, that's quite a heavy question for a comedy night. Um, so I'm going to move to the slightly heavier question at the bottom of the sheet. Um, we have four genuine academic experts here from various fields. Um, this person wants to know, Tim Tams or Mint Slice? <laughs> mint Slice. Tim Tam, mint and chocolate should never meet. Oh. Oh. A round
round of applause because we're emanating from the back. I don't like Tim Any Tans. other opinions? You like Tim Tans? No, I don't. You don't? Oh. I like no, I think they're both, kind of so it's boring. They're gross. What, Tim Tams? Tim Tams. Right. Yeah. I like the dark chocolate variety of the Tim Tam. Okay. They're no penguin, but let's not get started. <laughs> um, penguin. I remember my high school physics teacher bringing in a packet of Tim Tams so that he could do the like, Tim Tam slam where you bite off the end of each thing and then you can drink some tea or milk or something through the Tim Tam. Um, and he tried desperately to explain the physics principle behind this happening, uh, but he had just lost us for the next 15 minutes as we got very, very giddy because of the Tim Terms. I think that was actually my initiation ceremony into Australia. This uh, a lovely... Oh, at customs. Uh, no, not quite at customs, but in the first week, um, uh, a lovely member of staff in the chemistry department at Sydney Uni took me to the office, made me a cup of tea, gave me a Tim Tam and instructed me to bite off both ends. And it was this rather strange thing where I thought, you know, is this being filmed or something? And she was like, just put the Tim Tam in the tea. And just suck on my end of that Tim Tam. And I was thinking, okay, you know, I'll go for it. And then, you know, everything worked out. I'm still here. <laughs> um... Excellent. Oh, one last one. Uh, what's uh, your dream uh, scientific discovery or achievement? What do you hope that we can uh, make possible in the next, let's say, 100 years? The discovery of life uh, outside of... Discovery life. of life, yeah. yeah. Outside of I've, I've got good news for you. <laughs> There's not much intelligent life here on Earth, but that's another story. But out there in the universe, because we haven't found life at all outside the surface of the Earth, really. Does that include birds? <laughs> then, then, include what? Then birds. They're not on the surface of the earth. They're like... Because I'm, I'm just trying to make you happy, Shane. Afraid not. I'm okay. sorry. All right. Anyone else? Probably inhabiting somewhere else other than earth. I think that's probably quite crucial at this point. Mm -hmm. I'm going to bring us back down to earth because there's too much talk of space here. And <laughs> um, I think... Um, I think there's still lots of things... Well, there definitely is. It's not even my opinion, just my opinion. There's, there's still lots of things that we don't understand that are very fundamental. And um, I reckon, like, for chemistry, um, even though I'm really interested in, in being able to make things, like we, the, so just one simple thing is that organic chemists like to make organic molecules, and we try to say that we can make any organic molecule, but... There are bonds and things that we, 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 we imagine about, but we can't do it in the same kind of cool way that nature does things. So nature has lots of ways of making molecules um, that are very specific and very cool, and they can do things at very low temperatures in the body. But lots of the way that nature makes things is like one thing can do one reaction. So a chemist can do lots of reactions, but it can't do it as well as nature. So if we could somehow do things as well as nature but less specifically, then we'd be able to make anything that we wanted to in terms of small molecules. And if you can make small things, then that means that you can make big things, and then that expands to everything. So in terms of making things, I reckon it would be cool to be able to make anything that you want. And like that goes... a new colour? Yeah, maybe. <laughs> maybe. And, you know, if you, sm if you start small, then you can, you can get to really big things too. So... Until you can make anything you want to, it's hard to imagine the possibilities 
for engineers or for people making, you know, new fuel or new vehicles or new space rockets. So I guess that's mine. Excellent. So, like, the most advanced version of Minecraft you could possibly imagine. <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. Excellent. James? I don't know. I'm, I'm still a natural historian at, at heart, so I, I like... I want to know the secret lives of creatures that are in the leaf litter and too small for us to see and how uh, parasitoid wasps find stick insect eggs to lay their own eggs in. And, yeah, that's the big one. Yeah. <laughs> Keeps me up at night, Jim. <laughs> <laughs> um, before we wrap up, uh, I just want to take a moment. If you want to, uh, we have a lot of podcasts represented uh, on the stage. Uh, you should take a moment to tell us about your podcast, Shane. Uh, yes, I'm part of STEM Punk. I'm one of three, uh, led by Tom Gordon, Christy McGonigal, and myself. And we try and do everyday conversations uh, on topical subjects. And one of our aims is also trying to talk to the climate change deniers and anti-vaxxers of the future um, and the like. So check out our podcast. Uh, blog post and everything like that. Cheers. Awesome. James? Uh, I have the In-Situ Science podcast, uh, which is where this will go up if you want to hear it again. It's, it's, it's a great podcast. It's, I really like it. It's a, we interview scientists, and it's not so much about the science, it's about meeting scientists and finding out what makes them tick and why they do all the weird things that we've been talking about today. Great. Alice? Um, I'm really lucky, and I've got a couple, so... Um uh, I sometimes come on with Dr. Carl and his shirtloads of science podcast and um, I do a weekly segment on FBI radio, which is called Up and Atom, and that has its own podcast. And um, I guess the one that I have some postcards on the table for tonight is uh, a podcast that um, I made with Bernie Hobbs and Ali Benton at the ABC. And basically it's called, it's called The Science. Um, you should subscribe now and write us a really nice review even before you listen. Um, basically, Bernie and me have taken on the role of scientific agony ants. So the agony ants who solve problems that people, you know, really never asked us to solve. So we've trawled through magazines and um, online support groups, found problems that people have written in and their responses. And then we decided to tackle them again, but using science. And that's our that's our podcast, so check it out. It's really, really good. It's really good. Uh, Lee, you don't have a podcast. If you no, if anyone wants to make one, then we can meet up in the corner there yeah. afterwards. If there's anyone here from Squarespace, if you could let us know. Uh, Lee's got probably an idea, maybe. No, I need to finish my PhD. Yeah, okay. Uh, yeah, that's fair. Um, that's it from us. Uh, thank you so much for coming. Uh, can you please thank the Camelot Lounge for having us? Your palace, Shane, James, Lee, and Alice. Thanks, everybody. My name's James. Thank you so much for coming out. Have a good night. Goodbye. Thank you.